Do oral contraceptives impact exercise performance? Welcome to the Science of Getting Faster podcast, where we cut through the headlines, talk directly to the researchers to find out what their studies suggest, what they don't, and where their research is heading. With us on the podcast today, we have Dr. Kelly McNulty. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Kelly. Thank you for having me. It was strange hearing it for the first time, actually. I haven't heard I know. Dr. Kelly McNulty yes. yet. <laughs> Recently, Dr. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kelly just passed her, was it your PhD, Viva, you... Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so big congrats. Um, so yeah, today we're going to be talking about the impact of oral contraceptives on performance. Um, and we're going to be looking at Dr. Kelly McNulty's um, meta-analysis where she dives into um, this question. So Kelly, could we start, could you tell us what are the different types of contraceptives available to women? Yeah, definitely. So I guess this is a huge, a huge question. And I guess it applies to like 50% of the population, like most of us are going to use some form of contraception, whether, you know, that's hormonal or non-hormonal at some point in our life. So I guess we need to know what options are available for us um, and kind of what they consist of. And normally that's not really kind of common, common knowledge as well. And it is a little bit overwhelming. And I know a recent study um, showed that only 29%, I think it was, of sportswomen knew that the combined or contraceptive pill contained two synthetic hormones, and only 18% knew that the progesterone-only pill only contained one type. So you can kind of see from this initially that actually our kind of knowledge on this area is really, really low, especially in sportswomen and those working with them. So, you know, hopefully I can shed a little bit of light on the different types now. So I guess if we start with kind of the non-hormonal options, like you just mentioned there and um, these include the likes of you know the condoms the diaphragms caps and those mainly work by that kind of barrier method um, but within that you also have the copper coil so that's another kind of non-hormonal option but essentially this is like a small plastic device that's medically inserted into uterus and then normally lasts around five to ten years so it's kind of once it's in you can kind of forget about it and it contains no kind of synthetic hormones within that and instead works by releasing kind of copper into the womb um, environment. Now, I guess they're kind of the non-kind of hormonal option. Um, but if you kind of talk about hormonal contraception, so since their kind of first introduction, which was around about in the 60s, this term's kind of come to define like a wide variety of different types. So you've got the combined types that I just mentioned there, but also the progestin-only types as well. Um, but on top of that, you've got kind of monophasic, biphasic, triphasic types as well, as well as a wide variety of, you know, different delivery methods. So we've now not only just got pills, but we've got injections, we've got implants, we've got patches, we've got vaginal rings. So, you know, there's a wide variety of brands within that as well. But I guess ultimately the main way we can kind of start to break them down is looking at kind of the combined types versus those progestin only types. So the combined types, these contain these two active ingredients, like I said before, so a synthetic estrogen and progesterone. Um, and I guess these synthetic forms, so of estrogen, they're normally always the same type, which is ethyl estradiol, if I pronounce that correctly. There's so many different, different ways of saying everything, but, and that's kind of always coupled with a synthetic progesterone, so progestin. And again, there are lots of different kind of generations and different types of that. And I guess kind of digressing quickly um, from that in terms of kind of this progesterone, I guess most of us think that 
you know, what's in a combined pill will be mostly the same across the different types and the different brands. But actually, there's a lot of difference between, you know, the estrogenic and the progesterogenic content in each type and also the different types of androgenicity and potency of the different progestins as well. So I guess... Ultimately, these progesterones are made from um, testosterone at the kind of top level. They're derived from that. And then from that, you know, because they kind of they don't act in a similar way to natural progesterone. So, for instance, they can also have an impact on um, androgen and estrogen receptors as well. So it's kind of something to come that I think about when you kind of as a sportswoman taking these different types as well and what I guess me, what I mean by that is kind of they have different like kind of potencies and androgenicity so potency refers to the type of the progesterone to produce its normal kind of progesterone effects whereas you've got this other side of androgenicity which refers to kind of masculine characteristics and the ability to produce those so I guess when it comes to thinking about kind of maybe performance and training adaptation the different types and the potencies androgenicities might be playing some sort of role in that but we need a lot more a lot more research before we can say but steering kind of back to the topic of these combined forms these basically prevent pregnancy by stopping ovulation and kind of making the uterus this infertile environment as well as thinning the uterine lining as well and combined forms, so these include the combined oral contraceptive pill, which I know we'll discuss in more detail as part of the paper. Um, and that's taken usually for 21 days, followed by that seven pill-free um, interval. Um, or in some people, actually, it can be taken for 28 days where you have active pills and inactive pills as well. It depends where you are in the world and what you're using as well, just to add to all the complexity that we have. And then essentially... Also within the kind of combined forms as well, we've got the vaginal ring. Um, so this is a small sort of soft plastic ring. Again, this is self-administered. Um, it's inserted into the vagina. It stays there for roughly 21 days before, again, it's removed to have that seven-day um, pill break. So it works quite similar to the pills. And then similar to that also, we have the um, patch as well. So again, that works, you know, self-administered. You stick it on your skin and that, um, the hormones absorb through that way. And again, it can sit there for roughly, you know, the three weeks and then the seven day um, interval as well so they all kind of work quite similar in terms of those 21 days seven days as well um, but if we kind of now look at those progestin only types and um, so these mainly work in contrast with you know the combined type stopping ovulation these mainly work by you know um making the kind of uterus an inhospitable environment, basically. Um, so the progestin-only types that we have, so we've got the progestin-only pill. So you take that for 28 days. Again, no break in that one, unlike, you know, the combined pill. Um, you also have the implant. So that's like a small, flexible, kind of thin implant that goes in the upper arm. That is medically administered and can stay there for roughly three years. And then you have the injection as well. So again, that's medically administered, but it's more short-term in terms of it's about 13 weeks at last um, so roughly kind of three months um, but that said the implant is way easier to have removed compared to an injection that once it's in it's going to be it's going to be in um, you can't you can't get that back and then finally you have that hormonal IUD as well so very similar to that coil um, again it's medically administered into that uterus um, and again except it only contains that one synthetic hormone compared to um, the com uh, the copper coil that contains none. So that was a bit of a whistle stop tour of all the different types there. Um, but hopefully <laughs> you could take something yeah. from, from that. Yeah, that's super informative. Thank you. Do any of them, so it sounds like they're all different from our natural 
um, what you would call endogenous hormones. Are any of them identical in any way or are they all synthetic forms that are um, slightly different? Yeah, they're all kind of different from our naturally producing hormones. So you've got, like you say, you've got the endogenous hormones. These are all exogenous hormones. And then the different types depend on how they're going to interact with the endogenous hormones and how that then, you know, going to work. So do they, the, you know, the combined type that's going to downregulate them, which I'm sure we'll kind of discuss in more detail as well. Whereas, you know, the progesterone types, they kind of work in a different way as well. So yeah, there's kind of a lot, a lot of complexity in, in how they yeah. work as well. Yeah. Definitely a lot to sift through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You mentioned monophasic, biphasic and triphasic. What does that mean? Yeah, so that's basically kind of how the pills are delivered. So this is in the oral contraceptive pill. So a monophasic is the kind of dosage remains the same across the entire kind of pill taking day. So you don't kind of have any change in the dosage. Whereas biphasic, you've got kind of this two, you've got kind of this steady, I think it, you're testing my knowledge here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, um, you've got the steady, um, I think it's progesterone and then varying estrogen and it goes in a, like a stepwise increment so you've got like a biphasic response and then the triphasic you've got this kind of three level plateau and it kind of more mimics the natural menstrual cycle um so yeah the main mainly used is monophasic but obviously some people do use these biphasic and these triphasic options as well so um, adding an extra complex yeah we'll double check that I got that the right way around before (laughs) yeah but we get the idea (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah definitely so what do we see typically used in what's the most common used in the athletic population yeah so I guess um we know kind of we talked about that natural menstrual cycle it's open to these external changes in terms of hormonal contraception and I guess that's why it's really important when we're not only working with women but when we're research women um, that we you know account for this because there was a study by I think it was Martin in at Al in 2018 and they showed that almost half of the female athlete population that they surveyed now this was in the UK um, that were using some type of hormonal contraception so yes while we do need to kind of you know, advance our understanding of the menstrual cycle. We also do need to take into consideration that actually there's about 50% of sportswomen out there who are who don't have a natural menstrual cycle and we need to be able to support and work with them um, in the same way as well. So like I just mentioned, there are lots of different types of hormonal contraception, but generally the combined monophasic or contraceptive pill is the most commonly used. So in that paper by Martin, I think it was 69% were using of the people using hormonal contraception were using using that combined monophasic or contraceptive So I guess subsequently that's the most researched in this area as well. Um, and I guess kind of the reasons for use in sportswomen is pretty similar to the general population. You know that primarily reducing the risk of an unplanned pregnancy. Um, but there are also some sportswomen that use it for different reasons as well. So maybe to manipulate their cycles so that they can control or eliminate entirely um, their periods so for instance some sportswomen are going to find having their periods you know inconvenient they might be an extra concern when it comes to performance and training and competition and then you know some might experience really negative side effects of their natural menstrual cycle um, which could affect their performance and training so this could help to kind of manage some of those symptoms as well so I guess 
to some extent, many sportswomen are kind of exploiting this use of combined, you know, monophasic or contraceptive pills for these potential non-contraceptive benefits of being, you know, able to know when your um, kind of bleeding is going to happen or potentially even stop that from happening. And this, that's been studied, I can never pronounce this, this surname, but it's like Schwamberg. <laughs> um, and they basically showed that roughly 30% of corp- um, combined or contraceptive users manipulate their cycle on average about four times a year um, and then 75 um, 75 percent I think is manipulate at least once per, per year so to avoid kind of whether that's you know going on holiday or special events or youth sports competition um, and convenience in terms of performance that way as well so I guess it's also important to highlight though that some um, sportswomen are using it for medical reasons as well so you know like the treatment of heavy menstrual bleeding or um kind of supporting that amenorrhea or kind of other kind of conditions as well. So I guess it's really important when we're working with sportswomen to also recognise the kind of reason for use is going to be different different for everyone. Yeah. Why do you think the oral contrac- the monophasic um, combined oral contraceptive pill is the most common? Is it due to cost or is it? Um, yeah, so I guess in the UK it's kind of, free to a certain extent as well so we don't have to worry worry about that as much but babies around the world and like I say that study was in the UK so obviously they're going to be different barriers and maybe it's different um, in different countries as well um, but I guess kind of what I think in my personal experience I think this study was in 2018 and it was an elite UK athlete so it was quite a big population but actually it'd be really interesting to know if that's changed because I know when we've been doing our experimental studies throughout our PhD actually we found it really really difficult to recruit anyone who was on a combined monophasic pill and actually there was loads more of this popularity in those progestin only types so I don't know maybe that's changed since 2018 um, I know just kind of you know working with sportswomen generally and trying to recruit for these experimental studies has been so difficult despite it being the most popular and um, so maybe that has changed and it'd be quite interesting to see you know actually if it has with some, with some research as well. Definitely. So it sounds like there's a clear, yeah, like you said, clear need to understand how this impacts women's performance um, with so many uh, people using it. So how does the taking those exogenous, so the um, hormones that come from the pill, impact a woman's natural cycle? Yeah, so I guess if I kind of maybe start by describing the menstrual cycle and then I can <laughs> take it um, from there. So I guess the menstrual cycle in general refers to kind of that hormonal fluctuations, you know, that occur every kind of month-ish or there are thereabouts from the age of about 12 to like 50-ish again. Um, and I guess ultimately the reason why we have a menstrual cycle in the first place is to allow for reproduction. So, you know, that we can become pregnant, reproduce, um, but definitely not what most of us are trying to achieve <laughs> on average every month. Um, but there's this kind of common misconception that, you know, the mens- length of the menstrual cycle is how long you bleed for, but actually it's kind of the time from the first day of your period all the way through to the day before your next period begins. And that kind of length is roughly around about 28 days. So um, it's worth noting that only around 13% of us have a 28-day cycle, but roughly somewhere between 21 and 35 days is what is what we consider normal in adult women. And also there's common that there can be some variation in that length of up to eight days as well. Now, 
as women, we have two predominant sex hormones. So there are lots of other hormones involved in our menstrual cycle, but the two main hormones are estrogen and progesterone. And across that textbook 28-day cycle, these hormones, they rise and they fall in a fairly predictable pattern um, each month. So for example, at the start of the cycle, so that's day one, first day of bleeding, we've got estrogen and progesterone are at their lowest concentrations. Then following the period, so roughly kind of around about day five, you get this increase in estrogen and that continues to rise until it reaches its peak around about day 11 to 12 in that textbook example. Um, and that's just before ovulation, which occurs usually at the midpoint in the cycle. Although again, you know, there's a lot of variation um, within and between women within that as well. Then after ovulation, estrogen takes a kind of momentary drop off before it then starts to rise again and reach a secondary peak around about days 20 to 23. And also at this time, progesterone also reaches its peak. So progesterone remain relatively quiet so far, but after ovulation starts to increase and reaches its peak then as well. So you kind of got both hormones are high in that kind of second half of the cycle as well. And then following that, if pregnancy hasn't occurred, those hormones, they drop off. And then that essentially allows the cycle to begin again so basically what it means is you've kind of got these three main hormone environments across the menstrual cycle whereby at the start we've got low estrogen low progesterone around the midpoint we've got this kind of rising high moderate estrogen and low progesterone and then we've got both hormones are high in that kind of mid luteal phase what we call in the literature and then like I said those drop off and that allows that kind of cycle to begin again but there is a lot of variation within that and I've kind of really simplified that as well but also there's a lot of variation um, within the same woman across her lifespan as well. So there are all kinds of factors to consider when it comes to looking at the menstrual cycle. But if we kind of look at the combined monophasic or contraceptive pill, so that most popular type, um, these were kind of initially designed to replicate that textbook 28-day cycle. So they have 21 pill-taken days followed by seven pill-free um, days. And like I said before, that kind of 28 day regime can change to, you know, um, a 28 days in terms of inactive and active pills as well. So it depends where you are in the world as well. But as I kind of mentioned before, they contain both a synthetic estrogen and progestin. And these exogenous hormones, they act via negative feedback on our HPO axis. So that's our hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. So the thing that controls the menstrual cycle. And basically it prevents the secretion of FSH and LH, so follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And then ultimately because of that, that has a knock-on effect and down-regulates our endogenous sex hormone production, so estrogen and progesterone. So I guess kind of there are lots of different numbers and how the concentration changes. Um, but put very simply, the, this pill results in kind of two main physiological changes. Um, so firstly, it suppresses those natural hormones, so the endogenous hormones that we produce throughout those pill-taking days. So that means instead of having these hormones, you know, rise and fall, as I just described throughout the menstrual cycle, um, the natural levels of estrogen and progesterone are almost downregulated. So if you were to see a diagram, they're almost kind of like flatlined along the bottom. And um, you do see some recovery in endogenous estrogen during the pill-free days, but it's only a small recovery that's usually not higher than normal concentrations of um, when you're on your period um, in the natural menstrual cycle. And then secondly, it kind of provides us with that artificial estrogen and progesterone during the 21 pill taking day. So every time you consume you know, that pill, you know, you get that rise and it peaks within one hour of taking and that drop off. And then you kind of get that like, I know I'm like 
flying my hands around here, but I don't know if you can see it or not. Um, but the kind of that builds up over time until you don't get that um, daily spike on the seven pill free days. And that's typically when women experience that withdrawal withdrawal bleed and I guess that's kind of another important thing to note is that this kind of bears no kind of physiological resemblance to a natural um, period or uh, um, menstruation experience during the menstrual cycle and I guess that's kind of why it's important we start using kind of the correct terminology around it as well um, because I know a lot of the sportswomen that I've worked with will believe or say oh yeah I'm having a period when actually they're on the combined pill and it's a bit like but it's a bit confusing in terms of language as well. And I guess it's important in one sense in terms of energy deficiencies as well. So the likes of red, so relative energy deficiency can be masked by hormonal contraceptive use as a withdrawal bleed can still occur, even if a woman is um sportswoman is underfueling. So I guess that's kind of one of the important points of um, you know, using that correct terminology. But hopefully that explained, you know, how those hormones work in um, compared to the natural cycle. Definitely. And like with it masking um, reds or chronic underfueling, can it ha- are there other long-term implications of um, chronically downregulating your own endogenous hormones? Yeah, so I guess for every type of hormonal contraception, there are going to be like benefits and risks to each one, and they're going to be different for everyone. So there is some evidence that shows that chronic downregulation of those um, endogenous hormones can result in the likes of changes in bone health, um, cardiovascular health, mental health as well. I guess for me, I don't feel you know totally comfortable in terms of being able to answer it correctly in terms of um, not being a medical practitioner. And I guess I feel those are in the best place to kind of assess that on an individual level with sportswomen in terms of, and I guess also we've, we have a lot of conflict in research and we do need more research looking at, you know, those long-term implications of bone health, on cardiovascular health, on mental health, et cetera. So yeah, there's a, it could potentially, but we, we need a lot more research and maybe medical practitioners are best in that area. Yeah. Definitely. So what role then do our sex hormones have on our physiology when it, as it pertains to exercise physiology? Yeah. So I guess whilst kind of ultimately the main aim of, you know, those endogenous sex hormones I talked about throughout the menstrual cycle is ultimately to support reproduction. Um, but because we have hormone receptors for estrogen and progesterone all over our bodies, so they're not just limited solely to our reproductive system they're in our in our muscles they're in our bones they're in our brains gut etc so they're all around our bodies and because of this the fluctuations in these sex hormones you know firstly across the menstrual cycle um, might influence you know those physiological systems like our cardiovascular system our neuromuscular system metabolic system etc um now i could go into all the possible potential effects but we, we would be here all day but very briefly, um, picking out some of the effects. So estrogen, that's mainly known for its anabolic effect. So it can influence muscle strength. Um, so theoretically, you know, when estrogen is rising in high without that kind of interference effect of progesterone across that kind of late follicular ovulatory phase, it's possible that might have effect on the likes of strength performance. Um, additionally, both estrogen and progesterone have been thought to influence the likes of substrate metabolism. So whereby some studies have shown 
in that in that kind of luteal phase, we rely more on fat and less on carbohydrates to fuel any activity um, compared to the follicular phase. So theoretically, you know, if we can burn more fat and, you know, spare carbohydrate stores that can potentially keep us going for longer, you know, preventing could have influence on endurance performance at that time, for instance. So and I guess, of course, sorry, just the luteal phase, you're saying that's the period just before, well, the period before the period. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's okay. where um, the luteal phase is kind of anything. I, I guess I've complicated there for anywhere from kind of ovulation to, you know, the day before your next period is the luteal phase compared mm-hmm. to the follicular, which is, you know, day one period up until ovulation. I've just basically simplified it in that, in that model there. Um, and I guess kind of depending on what sport you do, so endurance or strength, they're going to have the different determinants of each one's difference. So the way estrogen and progesterone are going to potentially have a potential impact are going to be different as well in terms of the different different sports as well. And I guess there are so many different, you know, mechanisms by which, you know, our sex hormones might influence actual, you know, exercise physiology performance. However, whether those kind of influence translate into, you know, those actual changes in our, you know, overall performance are kind of not well understood. So, you know, given that estrogen and progesterone might affect multiple physiological functions, which are integral to exercise performance, we don't know whether this results in optimal windows for exercise performance, if that makes sense. So I guess if we look kind of from the menstrual cycle perspective, at the moment, um, studies that have, shown, have looked at, investigated this have shown, some studies have shown an effect, others have shown absolutely no effect whatsoever. And basically we have this lack of consensus or agreement on whether the menstrual cycle and these fluctuations in sex hormones do or don't influence exercise performance. And kind of as a sister to the kind of paper which we'll discuss more, we, actually, we also looked at the effects of the menstrual cycle and exercise performance in a very similar paper. So basically, just like in the other paper we'll discuss, we basically collected all the evidence that had looked at exercise performance across the menstrual cycle, brought all those studies together to come to some sort of conclusion. And what we essentially found was that exercise performance, so this is both strength and endurance combined, um, might be reduced by a trivial amount during the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. So this is when estrogen progesterone concentrations are at their lowest, so roughly during days one to five of the menstrual cycle when women experience their period. Um, but the problem was, in addition to kind of this really small effect size we had, we also had a poor quality of the research. So, you know, we I think off the top of my head, 42% were classified as low quality. Um, so you can kind of see that we don't have a lot of confidence in the evidence that we were including in that study as well. And because of all that, it meant that we couldn't perform, you know, those hard and fast guidelines on the effects of the menstrual cycle and exercise performance. And instead, we recommended a personalized approach. So I guess the takeaway in terms of this menstrual cycle paper was that, you know, sportswomen and those working with them need to be aware of these fluctuations in sex hormones and aware of the potential times where by we might have enhanced performance or reduced performance. But this approach it should be very much tailored to and informed by the individual sportswomen that you have in front of you. And I guess I can share a reference to that paper as well um, if, you, if people want to dive into a bit more. But essentially, going back to kind of your original question, a really long-winded way of getting there. Um, I but as, <laughs> as I kind of mentioned earlier, um, the oral contraceptive pill contains, you know, the um, 
exogenous sex hormones and that results in an entirely different hormonal profile compared to that natural menstrual cycle so you know we've got this down regulation of endogenous estrogen progesterone like that flat line but also we've got the presence of those exogenous sex hormones as well and in turn that can potentially affect exercise performance in an entirely different way um, when compared to, you know, when we compare those on the pill compared to naturally menstruating, but also when we look at those on the pill as well between those pill taking and those pill free days. So essentially sex hormones can potentially affect performance and because we alter them through, you know, um, or contraceptive pill use that could in turn therefore also affect exercise performance as well. Yeah, and that leads us nicely into your study. Um, and you've, you've touched on the aims there of your study. Um, could you explain what was it that you were, what was the question you had going into this study? Yeah, so I guess kind of so far within this kind of research area before these studies, a lot of the evidence was based on narrative reviews. So what I mean by that is kind of, um, in comparison to the meta-analysis that we did, um, they kind of pick out and choose, the authors choose what studies they want to discuss, whereas a meta-analysis, you know, research for all, all potential um, studies and therefore collate them all together in kind of a data analysis approach to it as well. So that was kind of one reason, you know, why we were coming from it with a different perspective of we you know, think these narrative reviews are great, but actually we now might have enough data to be able to bring it all together to actually come to some overall conclusion. So I guess that's kind of why we took that approach as well. But I guess essentially the results of um, the reasons behind why or the purpose of the study is very similar to the menstrual cycle paper in that despite, you know, we have so many women taking oral contraceptive pills, like I talked about at the start, the effects of oral contraceptives and exercise performance are still really poorly understood. So, you know, like I say, despite, you know, having these narrative reviews, but we've also got books, we've got experimental papers, very few of us kind of working in this area of sport and exercise. So, you know, athletes, coaches, um, practitioners, researchers, etc., are aware of of, you know, the implications of oral contraceptive on exercise performance. And again, this is because that previous research is conflicting findings. So on both kind of the direction, so if it does affect and the magnitude, so if it does have an effect, kind of what's the kind of magnitude of that effect as well. So it was really kind of difficult to determine any kind of guidelines from that. And therefore we've kind of got this lack of consensus. And that was ultimately what provided us with that kind of rationale for the reason for doing the review in the first place. Um, so essentially what we wanted to do was look at kind of or find and analyze all of the previous studies, which had A, looked at the effects of oral contraceptive use versus naturally menstruating women, and then B, the effects of oral contraceptive pill-taking days versus pill-free days as well. And then hopefully, you know, from that, we could kind of use that to inform some practical recommendations for athletes, practitioners, researchers interested in managing exercise performance you know, with oral contraceptive use and then also inform any research, future research as well. Um, yeah, so that's kind of why we originally. Yeah. So the previously you were saying they had all the narrative reviews. So this kind of gives a more objective overview of where the research is at um, rather than just contributing another study yeah. um, to the literature. Gotcha. Okay, so... You were compared when you were comparing the different um, groups, the oral contraceptive um, pill users and the nat naturally menstruating women. 
how did you compare them um, considering that the women with the natural menstrual cycle, they're going to be fluctuating a little bit more than um, the oral contraceptive pill users? Yeah, definitely. So that was something we definitely struggled with a lot throughout and how we're going to do it and how we're going to set it up. So essentially, kind of, we measured these kind of four main broad comparisons. So the first one was that between group comparison. So naturally menstruating women versus all contraceptive pill users. So um, we also had the within group comparison. So that was kind of where we looked at, like I say, pill taking versus those pill free days. That was a lot more easier in terms of we looked at, you know, those days were a lot more easier set out. Um, but we also had a comparison of active oral contraceptive use with non-use as well. And then we had the randomized control trials. Now, the last two, those weren't meta-analyzed because there was only like two or three studies that came from that. But if I kind of go back to that between group and how we set that off. So um, for the kind of between group analysis, we compared naturally menstruating women. So with the or contraceptive pill phase, so days one to seven, with the equivalent of what would be the period of the menstrual cycle, so days one to five. So that's kind of how we quantified that. And then we kind of had the oral contraceptive pill consumption day. So that was kind of days eight to 28, with all the kind of other phases of the menstrual cycle, so days six to 28, um, except that early follicular phase. So it does sound a bit confusing, but essentially we compared in that first original one, the kind of bleeding phases and the kind of consumption or the kind of where we've got the fluctuation phases. Um, but I guess it's going to be a criticism of most, you know, um, meta-analysis or reviews in this area in terms of making those kind of meaningful comparisons between the groups, because like you say, they're an entirely different hormonal profile. And um, so I guess that's kind of why we kind of wanted to try and, you know, move past that implication or reduce the impact that limitation was having. And so we ran another analysis. So this was without kind of getting into the complexities of the data analysis. Um, this was basically designed so that we could better match this natural menstrual cycle with these oral contraceptive pill phases as well. So essentially for this, we mapped days one to five 12 to 16 and 19 to 23 from both of the cycles. And that corresponds with the early follicular phase, the um, late follicular to ovulatory phase and the mid luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. You know, those three key phases that I mentioned um, when we've got low estrogen, low progesterone, high estrogen, low progesterone and high estrogen progesterone with all the other, with the oral contraceptive pill consumption phases. So yeah, essentially we compared, you know, the two most stable phases of the of the oral contraceptive pill and the menstrual cycle. So that kind of when the period, um, when the bleeding, and then we compared the least two stable phases. So, you know, the consumption phase with all the kind of other fluctuations and then to kind of overcome that we performed an additional sensitivity analysis to kind of better match the oral contraceptive pill and the menstrual cycle phases so it it sounds really complex but that's kind of how we tried to get around it as well yeah definitely that makes sense and it's better than not comparing them at all yeah uh, yeah so, yeah yeah definitely it, it, and yeah then, it's a hard sorry. one i guess in terms sorry like no. with any kind of research in this area it's like you can always kind of compare or use the oral contraceptive pill as kind of a control group you know they've got a different 
flatlined um, hormonal profile, but actually they're an experimental group in their own right as well. You know, we need to investigate what's going on there. So it is really difficult in terms of, like you say, kind of either matching those hormonal profiles or, you know, do they need to be matched because they are different? And yeah, it's it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the other groups then also give you more information about those specific questions that might be left um, unanswered by um, those direct comparisons. So the other groups you had, you mentioned um, you were comparing the oral contraceptive users whilst they're on using the pill and then the withdrawal period. Is that correct? Yeah, so this third comparison that we did was essentially comparing active use with non-use. And what I mean by that is we had, you know, that within group comparison of those who were habitual um, pill users. So essentially those who were taking the pill and then stopped taking it or started taking it because of the experimental study. Um, and you can kind of see actually why I think I can't remember off the top of my head, but there was only two or three papers across those bottom three aims that I just discussed but I guess you can kind of see why ethically it would be a little bit difficult to actually run these studies so you know you can't withhold or a contraceptive pill um, use or kind of prescribe it to people it's a it's a lot ethically so that's why we only have that small amount of studies as well but the second one is where we looked at a randomized control trial so again that was where you're randomly either assigned to a pill group or the menstrual cycle group and ran through it that way. So the other one is essentially that first comparison is comparing those who stopped or started using the pill based on an experiment, whereas the randomized control trial, the fourth comparison was essentially those who were allocated into a group to run through the study. So those were a lot. We didn't focus on those as much throughout the reviews, although kind of that goal, they are a stronger research design, but because we had, you know, only two or three studies, we, we couldn't really make any um implications from that yeah definitely and did you look at the placebo whether there was an effect of placebo on uh, performance yeah so there was in terms of that randomized control trial there was a placebo uses within those as well i think um off the top of my head i'd have to look at those things yeah again. <laughs> definitely wow okay so there was lots of different yeah. uh, <laughs> questions you had looking at all these different papers so what were your results? What what did you find with um, each of these questions? Yeah, definitely. So I guess kind of without really overcomplicating everything, if we kind of look at it, like this kind of two main results that we had. So if we first look at the results that compared the between group analysis, so this is where we compared naturally menstruating women with pill users, this generally indicated a trivial performance effect with oral contraceptive pill use with superior performance seen in those who are naturally menstruating. So what this means is that some, but not all women who are taking an oral contraceptive pill might have slightly poorer exercise performance than those who weren't taking the pill. Um, but it's important to recognize that in addition to kind of that really small effect size, results also indicated, you know, relatively large between study variants. So indicating that things like the different research design, the participant characteristics, the type of performance outcome that were measured were all potentially influencing any effect here as well. Um, and then I guess moving on slightly to our kind of second main finding. So this within group analysis. So this is where we compared those pill taking days versus the pill free days. And this indicated that exercise performance was relatively consistent across the pill cycle. So this means that performance didn't change between those pill taking days 
all this pill-free day. So essentially, if you're practically, if you're a sportswoman, you don't really need to worry about what day of your pill cycle you're on when it comes to exercise performance. Um, but it's really important to understand as well here that a large portion of these studies, so I think it was around 80%, um, were classified as moderate, low or very low, and only 17, all the rest, 20%, were have achieved by were high quality studies so yeah we've got to kind of factor in you know when it comes to looking at these results practically and that small effect size and the poor quality of the research within that as well yeah definitely and did that how did that compare to your expectations then yeah i guess um for me personally and i guess this is another kind of difficult thing i I experienced throughout my phd is the reason i got into this topic was it's something that had an impact on my health and my performance and so i guess i went into the PhD with a lot of preconceived ideas of what I thought might be happening or what had happened to me. And I guess a big kind of learning curve in my journey was actually um, my own individual experience of the menstrual cycle and pill use might not be reflective of every single individual's experience as well. And I guess um, to some extent, you know, the findings that we did see in terms of that slightly reduced exercise performance on the pill was something that I definitely could relate to and something I struggled with, not only kind of performance-wise, but health-wise when I was on the pill. So I kind of got that. Um, um, And also, you know, that relatively consistent, you know, you could hypothesize that that would be roughly about the same, relatively consistent across the cycle. Um, But also I know that personally, um, when I was on kind of that withdrawal week, I actually experienced a lot of symptoms as well that I actually I feel like my performance would have been reduced. So to see that was quite consistent was interesting. So I guess um, it really highlights, you know, that individualness. You know, for me, when we started looking at the results and looking at the studies and being like, actually, this, you know, it, it's a lot more complex than simply just putting some guidelines on it, like what I thought originally going into the PhD we'd be doing. <laughs> tangle with my headphones (laughs) (laughs) so what do you recommend then for individuals when they're is it better to just try as many options as you can or what's the approach that you would recommend to finding the optimal one for you yeah, definitely. So what you said there in terms of maybe that kind of trying, but I guess collectively kind of from the study, um, the results do indicate that we might have that slightly reduced exercise performance, um, but the kind of effect, you know, magnitude and that variability really support that individual consideration. So I guess what I mean by that is the appropriateness of all contraceptives should be tailored by individual requirements. So, you know, when it comes to choosing, we need to think, is it because of a contraceptive need so you know that unplanned pregnancy is it a medical need and you know how am I responding to it in terms of my performance so you know what degree potentially is my performance being affected as some athletes will notice you know no effects and others will be you know affected by it as well so I guess we need to originally you know consider why we're using that oral contraceptive in the per- first place and I guess to some degree you know the consequences of an unplanned pregnancy are going to be far greater than that really small effect size that we showed in the study as well but then also you know on top of that you know we need to consider that natural um the experience 
experience of the natural menstrual cycle. Um, some women here experience substantial, you know, menstrual symptoms like some cramps, bloating, breast pain, heavy menstrual bleeding. That actually, for these individuals, the benefits of their pill are going to outweigh, you know, that small um, negative trivial performance effect that we're seeing here as well. So, I guess there are a large range of, you know, factors independent of, you know, what the hormones are doing and the effect that that might be having um, that we need to consider. Um, so, you know, the physical, emotional, but all the practical effects, but also in some parts of the world, you know, the financial and also health aspects as well. So, I guess ultimately everyone's going to have their own reason. And I think that's kind of the start of, you know, understanding why we're using it and then determining what potential effects it might have if any, on performance as well. And I guess kind of another thing that we didn't discuss within the reviews that I think has come through um, a lot more kind of clearly within the experimental studies in my PhD is that we didn't discuss the effects of oral contraceptives on symptoms as well. So um, as I mentioned, you know, before, the oral contraceptive pill is often prescribed to some women to, you know, reduce those negative menstrual cycle symptoms that we see. And that often leads to the thought within, you know, sporting environments that pill users don't have to contend with menstrual well cycle related symptoms however actually we've kind of shown in some recent data from our labs that actually symptomology between naturally menstruating women and pill users is quite similar and actually you know we need to actually start considering that as well which the two reviews you know we didn't consider within those as well so I guess it really emphasizes you know it would be great if we could discuss more about those topics and maybe a different kind of um once the outlet published as well but overall I guess it's really difficult like you say to make those kind of generalized recommendations and it all comes down to the individual and I guess from a practical perspective um the best way to kind of go about this is to kind of start tracking your pill use so you know the symptoms the performance effects but also maybe potentially going further than that and looking at kind of training effects recovery effects as well and then I guess this might be more impactful if you kind of had that information both before and after you started using the pill so that you could compare um and then i guess kind of finally you know if you've kind of got any questions regarding hormonal contraceptive use or experience any issues with it then you know seek that advice from the medical professional and help and you might be able to start you know if you go with all this data you can go oh this is how it's affecting me and I feel like this can I try this other one and then you've got the data there to then see how you feel for the next type that you try and so it is a bit of trial and error which might be frustrating um but yeah hopefully that kind of what you might go about doing yeah definitely just keeping track of symptoms in a training diary or something like that could um really help you draw some figure out some trends at least yeah definitely and I think what's important within that as well is you know doing it for roughly three months so it can take that kind of long to settle into a new kind of hormonal contraceptive use and to actually start collecting data that's reflective of what's going on rather than kind of those changes that first you know happen when you first start taking a pill or different hormonal contraceptive as well. What would you say to women who like you mentioned earlier that there's some women that use the oral contraceptive pill and skip that withdrawal period. Well, do these results um, indicate anything about that practice? Yeah, so I guess because we showed that ex- in terms of exercise performance solely, because we showed no real difference between the pill taking and pill-free days, it shouldn't really matter if, you know, you skip that um 
the kind of withdrawal peak period um, or bleed, even though I meant period is in time there, but you can see how easily in terminology yeah. get, <laughs> can be mistaken. But if we kind of skip that, it shouldn't really have any performance effect. That said, we don't really yet know the long-term implication of, you know, back-to-back or continuous skipping of that withdrawal withdrawal bleed. So or the kind of... Um, withdrawal phase so yeah um, that kind of needs to be considered as well but in terms of performance the results from this don't really show that it would have an effect but we don't know about long-term health and yeah did you notice a difference between strength um, and endurance outcomes in this no so we originally when we set out to do the study we had this massive table where we were extracting all the studies and you know we were going into strength and endurance and then we we're going strength into you know maximal strength rate of force of production and then we had um endurance performance into continuous intermittent and then continuous into all the different times and fasted non-fasted and we filled out this massive document but actually because we saw no effect at the original level so when we ran them separately we showed no effect so we combined them to have more data so essentially we factored this in in terms of our analysis of looking at strength and endurance but generally no difference between them so we'd hoped to go on further but because we didn't see any effect at the top level it meant we couldn't start cherry picking the, the results underneath that yeah definitely so what else would you like to see studied um in this area um to give you a more confident uh, to to allow you to be more confident in your recommendations or um, yeah, to I, fill the picture a little bit more yeah i guess ultimately we need more research in this area so I was involved in a paper last year it was called Invisible Sportswomen where we highlighted that actually only six percent of studies are done exclusively on women and so you know we've got this massive data gap in sport and exercise science when it comes to women and athletes and I'm not saying you know all data that's done on men isn't beneficial to women you know we're not entirely different species Um, so we're going to respond in the same way you know we don't need to kind of repeat every study in women Um, but there are some women specific factors like the menstrual cycle or contraceptive pill that actually you know women might you know perform better or respond better to those specific guidelines so yeah we do need more research but also I think kind of a part of that is the quality of the research as well so as I mentioned we showed in kind of both reviews that the result um quality results were quite poor and so we do need this kind of increase in the quality of the research alongside you know that quantity of research as well because that's going to be able to allow us to make the best informed um guidelines that we can as well um and then I think also kind of taking the research further is we it's mainly performance is only looked at in terms of the combined oral contraceptive pill but actually what about progesterone only um, users as well and we need to kind of investigate exercise performance in those so there are no studies that I'm aware of that have looked at that so I think that's really an opportunity or you know some low-hanging fruit that we could go in and and look at exercise performance um, with progesterone only use as well so yeah there are there are lots of areas for for more research in you know this women's specific sport and exercise space so yeah it's exciting, but also, you know, a little bit frustrating of why we haven't got the research, but yeah. 
Yeah, well, we appreciate you pushing it forward. <laughs> it's it's really great, and I've been following you. Yeah, you, you only got your PhD, but I knew about you. I think a couple of <laughs> years ago, I was like, wow. And <laughs> um, so, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. It's been so informative, and I'm sure it will be for many of our, even our maybe male coaches as well, women athletes. Um, it's just really helpful to first understand our bodies um, as well and what impacts them. Where can we find, um, where can we keep up with your work? Yeah, definitely. So um, you're mainly on Twitter and I also kind of run a platform period to period on Instagram on there on Twitter as well. It's really bad that I don't know the exact handles and everything like that, but I can share, I can okay. share it with you and you yeah. can put it in, yeah, <laughs> in notes. Um, yeah, so I'm actually starting, so swaying a little bit away from menstrual cycles and hormonal contraception, um, but actually taking a look at perimenopause and menopause effects. So that's kind of my next kind of research adventure, but we'll still always be keeping in with this research on both platforms as well, because something I find so interesting so yeah you might see a bit more menopause on that though <laughs> okay great well fascinating well maybe we can get you back on to chat about that sometime um yeah thank you so much you're welcome thank you